Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 17. My mission on this podcast is to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. And more than any other show, I think this one, the chat you're about to hear, hones in at the very heart of leadership responsibilities. Leading a team is perhaps the most fundamental, the most obvious, and often the most challenging responsibility of a leader. My guest on this episode is Chris Burton. For almost 20 years, Chris has been immersed in the theory, the science, and the art of helping teams develop. In his work at TMS, Team Management System, Chris has worked with hundreds of teams directly, and he's trained countless team facilitators. When we met a little while ago, and I got a sense of his passion and knowledge about the way teams work, how they perform and how they develop, I just knew I had to have him on the show. Chris has a deep theoretical understanding of the psychology of developing, leading, and participating in a team environment, and you'll hear that ooze out of him today. But just as importantly, Chris has a clear understanding that, although it's lovely, rewarding, and feels good to be part of a healthy and happy team, the only reason leaders and organizations spend time and money developing team culture is to improve the bottom line. Healthy teams produce higher quality work. They are more efficient, they're more collaborative, and more creative. So everything that Chris knows and everything that he talks about is linked back to the work that a team does, the value they add to the organization. Whether you're in a formal leadership position or not, if you're interested in understanding a little more about the way teams work and how they can improve their performance, this is the episode for you. I hope you enjoy my chat with Chris Burton. Chris, it's wonderful to have you on the Team Guru podcast. Thanks for coming and having a chat. Absolute pleasure, David. We met a little while ago, and as I said at the time, it was invigorating to chat with someone who spends as much of their time talking and thinking about team performance as I do. When I got a sense of your passion and knowledge about teams, how they work and how they develop, I just knew I had to have you on the show. So welcome. Thank you very much. Now, I think the biggest challenge we're going to have today, mate, is uh, knowing when to stop. Mm-hmm. I think between the two of us, we could probably talk on this topic for days. Yes. We will try to keep it manageable. And more than anything else, our goal here today is to help people understand a little more about being part of a team, leading a team, and, and helping that team grow in maturity and effectiveness. We'll try and create a, a bit of a battlefield guide, shall we? Sounds good. All right. So let's start from the very beginning. Let's pick your expert brain, Chris. I want you to tell me right from the start, what is a team? How do I know when I go to work every day and it's with a team? A team is a very specific term and defining that simply and and concisely as a small group of people working together with a common purpose. And the notion that it's small, it's it's usually a manageable group of people, but it's the key aspect of working together towards a common purpose that's, that's really critical and differentiates a team from a group. Interdependence means that I rely on you for us working effectively, as opposed to just working in parallel. And so a team has to have that interdependence to really be called a team. The reason why that's important is because we use that term so much in organizations. We're a team when probably we're just a group or a committee or, or there, there is not that interdependence. Another feature of that definition is the idea of purpose as well, because the role of the team purpose in defining what we do is, again, critical to our performance. Now, this becomes interesting when we look at leadership teams or we look at groups where the purpose of our existence is perhaps a bit more abstract or nebulous compared to, well, we make widgets or we lay concrete or whatever it is that that might be a very clear cut purpose. But that's a team. All right. So a team has a common goal. They work together and they're interdependent. I love the term interdependence and I love the little spectrum that Stephen Covey spells out in his book, 
the seven habits of highly effective people, I think it's called. He talks about the fact that, uh, you know, at one end of the spectrum is dependence, where, you know, we all begin our career dependent on the knowledge of others. We all begin our life dependent on the efforts of our parents. And then for a lot of us, we think that the goal is independence. We think that that's what's at the other end of the spectrum of dependence. But really, independence is in the middle of the spectrum. And it's that higher purpose of interdependence, which is at the far end. But we can so easily mistake independence as the final destination, can't we? Because we spend so much of our career, our early career, we spend so much of the early part of our life seeking and craving independence. Then when we get there, we think it, you know, maybe we can stop. But interdependence really is a a higher calling, isn't it? And that's what a team's all about. When you're working with a group of people at work, you're, you're on a team, how do you know if you've really struck that interdependent relationships? What are the great things that I might enjoy at work if I've found myself in that situation? A great question and an elusive question as well, because you can usually only know that when you feel it within the dynamic. And that leads to this issue that beyond our results and our performance expectations, there is also a dynamic within the group that is palpable often the energy, the team climate, engagement levels, all of those things. Yes, we can get metrics around it, but more often than not, it is more just the feel. It's the vibe. Having said that, the performance outcomes will be better and more sustainable. We'll have norms within the group that are healthy. And yes, our performance will reflect that. But to really know that, it's often more of that sense that, you know, this is a great team. We have a high energy about who we are, confidence in what we do. There's engagement. Uh, we get into the flow of our work. So we always know when you think back through your career or through life, whether it's in a sporting team or a community group or whatever it might be, when you, when you have that true interdependence, it's kind of obvious because it's so unique and different and, and it feels productive and, and enjoyable, I guess. But in the time that you've spent in this industry, and you've been in the industry nearly two decades, I believe, yeah. you would have seen some teams. You would have seen some fantastic teams that work really well together, and you may very well have come across some toxic teams. When you consider all of those experiences, what have you learned about some of the common illnesses of teams, maladies perhaps, that they come to you and say, we need help. This is what's going on in our team, and and this is where we're going wrong. What do you see as far as those illnesses? It is back to the dynamic within the team more often than not. It's uh, more often than not about individual differences, personality, conflicts, clashes, clashes of values, but basically clashes between people. Like any sort of forced dichotomy here, we can either put things into people side of things and the psychology, or we can look at the operational side of things and the work processes. When it comes to work processes, it's often, it's a lot easier to address. There's a much more clear cut sense of, well, it's about resourcing, or it's about a lack of role clarity. And we can address that through spending time clarifying the demands of our job, who does what. Remembering that the problems between people, a lot of the time, more often than not, are the result of misunderstandings. Yep. And the people side of things, the result of misunderstanding individual differences, making assumptions about where people are coming from. Whereas for the operational side of things, it's about misunderstandings of what we're meant to be doing. We haven't spent time doing it. We've always done it that way. Or I'm operating from a job description when I was inducted in this job two years ago. And the pace of change has resulted in lots of different changes that I haven't actually communicated, for example. So you see the way teams work together is very much in those two categories, the the individual interaction, whether they're differences or similarities or harmonies or inharmonies, and then the work that we do. So the clarity about my role and the processes that we have as a team for getting our work done. I'm intrigued. Let's dwell on this a little more. Tell me about some of the individual differences that we all have. You know, they don't just exist when we're in a team environment. They exist when we're walking the streets having lunch with our family, what are some of the core individual differences that we can expect between people that we know? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, there's the obvious things like gender and age experience, cultural background, ancestry, all of those sorts of things are usually pretty clear cut and we know what we're dealing with there. The area that I work in is about things like our work preferences, similar to, well, basically, how do we like to work? How do we, what's our autopilot look like? Looking at risk, different risk orientations. Do I see the glasses half full? 
and things are going to be awesome and I'm going to be really driven? Or is it that the glass is, is half empty and I really have to make sure we look at all of these pitfalls we might encounter? We also look at values as well. But another thing that we look at in, in organisations is obviously outcomes and, and looking at our performance, but usually work preference, risk orientation and values. When you're working with a team, how do you split your time usually between talking about those personal differences we might have on an individual human kind of level compared with the processes, the way we do our work and how clear our role is? If you were to think back over all of the workshops you've done with teams and, and had a pie chart of those two things, how's the time split? Great question and an intriguing one because it would probably end up being close to 50-50, but bearing in mind that the 50% that's around the operational stuff happens at the front end of the conversation and then at the tail end of the conversation. So let me explain and draw that a little bit further. The reason why organisations will invest in their team and their leadership development is not so that you and I can understand each other better or I've got a much greater awareness. Well, they are interested in that, but only insofar as that brings a productivity gain, yeah? And so the reason why the organization is investing is to get an outcome. Additionally, we know from our research that half of the the leaders, the learners that we're working with, just want to get on and get the job done. And so we will begin our conversations with the operational discussion. We need to ensure that this conversation is about us doing the job. What is the best way of doing it? Having that to establish a current analysis of our situation, a SWOT analysis or whatever angle you want to take on that, where are we now performance-wise? But then once we've established that, let's have a look at how our individual differences have got us to this point. Why is it that we've got these great successes or why is it we have these challenges? Is it because we're different or because we're the same? And then once we've unpacked that and we've begun this journey of not only self but group awareness, we can then start going back to, so what? You and I are different, so what? What do we need to do about that to improve our performance? Let's talk a little bit about overcoming those personal differences because there's all sorts of models and theories that we can think of to describe those differences. A really common one, let's say MBTI, for example, that describes whether I'm an introvert or an extrovert, whether I'm a detailed thinker or a big picture thinker, whether I make my decision based on rational process or feelings, or whether I relate to the outside world by judging it and having finality or perceiving open-ended possibilities. So I love that model. And listeners will know that I always end my interviews by asking people those four questions to try and do a very raw MBTI profile on them. How valuable is it for a team to begin to understand those things firstly about themselves as an individual, and then to understand those type of preferences with their teammates? What value does it bring? And once I know that, what can I do about it? What does it look like on a practical level? Great series of questions. And the how important is it? it? It's extremely important to have some lens to compare our different approaches, a framework and a language to communicate that constructively as well. Because with teams in particular, it's our differences that allow us to succeed if we're all the same, doing the same thing, then the scope of our perspective, the different inputs, you know, that will limit our capacity to work effectively. And so having a simple model is really, really useful. The last question that you asked around, so what, is to then link those differences back to what we're doing. And that's where it's important to have that relationship, some sort of predictive relationship back from the fact that I might be introverted. But what does that mean for the work I do. The research that we did started out by saying, well, what is it that effective teams do and and what are the tasks? And we know that any effective process, we've got to work with knowledge and ideas and talk about them, talk them up. But we've also got to be focused on the details. We've got to sometimes be you know, innovative and go off on tangents, but sometimes we've just got to produce and get things done. Now, different people like to do different types of tasks. That's pretty evident. And so we need to find a reliable way of linking our differences back to our operations. That idea that, you know, it's an obvious idea that the differences that exist within our team are the thing that will make us effective and a a really fantastic team in terms of the production, what we produce and the way we produce it, the kind of environment that we create. But I know, and you know from your work, that it's those very differences that have the potential 
to be the win that are the loss, the thing that create the biggest problems. And I, I don't want to dwell on, on what it's like to be in a bad team, but I think a lot of people listening will have had various experience of teams and whether they're in a, a team at the moment that has some illnesses or they have been in the past, I'm betting, as you said earlier, that a lot of those came from the differences in the individuals. The thing that should very well be celebrated causes the illnesses. How do you take a team through the process of not just understanding that? Understanding is one thing and it takes a while to get there. You know, understanding is not easy in itself, but it's only the very beginning. It's now accepting them. It's accepting the fact that that's what could make us a fantastic team and then putting it into action. How do you see people progress down that path from not even knowing about individual differences to embracing them and making them work? Good question and a big question that speaks to motivation. Why should our learners, why should our managers or our colleagues be willing to listen and and try to understand your differences? Because the next step from that is to then do something about it. So to help make that step between awareness and behavioral change, what we do is look at the operational benefit of that, even starting with the fact that, you know, realizing in any team, we've got lots of different things that we need to do. And if we all like coming up with ideas, that's, that's great. We're going to have lots of ideas, but no attention to detail. And that, that's good. Okay, that, that's fair enough. Well, let me think back then, even my own performance at times when perhaps I haven't checked the details and what has been the pain point with that? What has been the learning from that? So by establishing the importance of doing different things, I lay the foundation of saying, well, I need different people for that. So that's, that's the first thing is, is that there is a gain in difference in real operational terms. But then, as you said, if you lay framework over that to explain those differences, that makes it just that little bit easier as well. But when it comes to organizing things, I'm, I'm very flexible, but you're very, very structured. Oh, so that's why we drive each other crazy. So we can understand that. We can also do something about that. Well, I'll, I'll just make more of an effort to do this and that. But then on top of that, you now can see that I'm making a contribution doing types of work that you probably don't like doing. So for nothing more than the fact that I'm doing stuff that you don't like, but you need to do, there's some benefit to you for having me here. Make sense? It makes perfect sense. And, and it sounds so easy. And when you explain it, and when I talk about it in workshops, it makes so much sense on a practical and theoretical level. But we know that that's one of the real difficulties. And it certainly is a sign of a team's maturity when they can understand those things and embrace them. All right, Chris, so I'm going to put you on the spot. Let's say someone listening today is a leader. They know that they've got a team. They're part of a team. They lead a team. That's okay. Going all right. But there's so much more potential there, whether it's about the individuals on the team working together more efficiently, whether it's about creating better processes, whether it's just about people getting on a little more and creating a more positive vibe around the place. If I'm a leader and I know that things could be better in my team, how do I go about it? I've never done any of this before. I've just been on teams. I know that it's not great, but I don't know what to do about it. What's my process? What do I do? One of the very first things needs to be recognizing that there's going to be so many different drivers for this. It's great that as a leader, you've thought that and you've recognized that things could be better because that's the important you know, recognition to kick things off. And from there, the realization that I need to search for what I'm looking for with this. What's in it for me? What's my motivation to want to change? And the reason why that's so important is team development and leadership development is a long journey. It's a long path to head down. Quite often in our work life, we are given more clear-cut problems to work with. They might be complicated, but nowhere near as complex as teams of people. So that's the first thing, is acknowledging that it is a, a long path that requires dedication. In addition to that, the leader has to have the support of those around him or her. The notion that there is an operational need that they are there performing on. Even the idea that organizational reward systems are around the individual a lot of the time means that if I'm doing this, there's a benefit financially for me or there's some sort of reward for me. That's the very first thing. The second thing is to then apply that same notion to their colleagues, to their team members. What are going to drive these guys? Do they just like the drama? Do they just want to show up, get the job done with minimum fuss, with minimum change? I just want to just clock in, do the job and head home safely at night. 
So thinking about the, the teammates. Now, there's also an acknowledgement here that much of this does take some skills and some knowledge. So most leaders as a baseline should have an awareness of some effective team models, some tools like the, the tools that we work with to hold up to their team, to hold up to their processes and say, well, what does this explain? So any leader embarking on this needs to have some tools, some frames. On top of that, having someone beside them to either coach or mentor them through this as well is always going to be critical. Whether that's an informal mentoring relationship or a more formal coaching relationship, having someone there to work with them is critical. Chris, you've just outlined a really helpful path for leaders who know they, they want to work on their team. They want things to be a little bit better with the way their team operates. You started out by pointing out that this is a long journey. You don't do this in a one-day workshop and it's done. So a leader who wants to work on their team up front has to accept that this is a process and it's a long path. The other thing, and actually, and we'll come to that in a minute, we'll talk about how we sustain some of the changes that we can make in one or two day workshops or, or a week together. The other thing that you pointed out was that it's really important to bring those team members along for the ride, to help them understand that by working on ourselves as a group, we can produce better results as a team. The work will be better. And it's often something that's mentioned as a little bit of a, a clash with team culture, the fact that in an organization, rewards, bonuses, promotions, salaries are all on an individual level but then we ask you to go and work really effectively as a team, you could be forgiven for thinking there's a massive clash there. And there probably is. There's certainly some research to suggest that rewarding people as a team is an effective way to get a team working together, but that's not the case for most organizations. So the way that you can calibrate that in your mind, I guess, is just by thinking, well, if I'm looking for career promotion, if I'm looking for rewards on that level, being a great team member is a good way to get that. You're not going to get promoted in an organization that values teamwork if you're not a good team man. So even though those rewards could be more aligned to the team, they're not in a lot of organizations and you can't change that. You can only work inside your sphere of influence, as they say, and it's not often in there. So that's one way of thinking about that, bringing along people for the ride by convincing them this will be good for your career, if not just for the work we produce as a team. Then you say... You've got to understand the motivation of the people who are on the team. Now, this, I think, is the tricky one. What if there are simply people on the team who don't have enormous career ambitions? They're not going to be tickled by that concept I just explained, that being a good team man will get you that promotion. What if they really do just want to come to work, get the job done, the bare minimum effort, and they don't care about team effectiveness, but you need them to care? What do you do about those people? Again, a great question, and this takes us a little bit deeper into what makes us different and what drives us. At Team Management Systems, the model we look at is around values, and a very critical dimension of values is individualism versus collectivism. And why that's important for teams is, is that when we put people together and you talk about being a good teamwork or a good team player, what that's typically reflecting are collectivist values or behaviours around collectivist values. But we can't discount individualism for, you know, just as many people, individualism is a really critical value. That's the more important value. So this is where we start talking about me versus we. It gets interesting when we look at collectivism, when we look at us and our group and their group and that sort of stuff. But let's not even go there. Back to your question. When we look at that level of depth, we look more at alignment and that it's a matter of accepting and embracing those different values acknowledging again that we're here to get the job done. I'm not asking someone to change their values, but what we need to do is establish acceptable behaviors that mean that those values can be expressed appropriately, but with the job at hand in mind. So if you've got someone who is determined to act in an independent way as part of an interdependent team, the way to get to them is by telling them to be independent in a way that we can all work with. Yeah. And this is back to the importance of having a frame, having a constructive language for this. And whether we're talking about extroversion and introversion or in the team management profile, you know, practical or creative use of information. Maybe I'm a, I'm a detailed person and you're a big picture person. Or whether it's collectivism and individualism. We 
always need to look at those from a strength-based perspective. Each of those dimensions brings with it great strengths and also things that we need to be mindful of. And so that is an important part of this type of approach. This sort of method is about understanding differences through these, you know, usually a lens of, of different dimensions or dimensionality, but bringing with that an acceptance that those differences, for me, from where I'm coming from, will influence the assumptions that I make about others. And very often, I'm just assuming that everyone else shares that perspective or shares that sense of values. And so if, for example, I do value independence and strongly individualist values, if I see you as my leader being all about collectivism and collaborative approaches, I'm just going to see that as conforming and lowest common denominator and what a waste of time doing all this consensus building. Can't we just get on with it? And well, in in some ways, yeah, perhaps we can at particular points, but it is a matter of determining what is the best in this context and given our purpose. In your time in this industry, have you ever really seen someone who is set in their way as an independent thinker, someone who doesn't think from a collective point of view, that's not a value from them? Have you ever really seen someone turn that around through education, looking at lenses like these models and seeing the light and thinking, hey, maybe I do want to jump on this interdependent train and be part of a greater calling? No. And I'm hoping that they're not going to change who they are. Who they are. And this is an important foundation, is, is that we're not asking people to change who they are, but rather reconsider what they do. The notion that from the position that I'm coming from, regardless of what that is, it's very easy to say, well, that's the right position. That's the best position. So back to establishing the importance of having diversity, because there's an operational return for that difference, that becomes an important theme of this whole set up. When a leader embarks on this team development process, is it fair to say that when you take your team along for this ride, not everyone will make it to the end? Yeah. And um, the question regarding seeing people change, change who, who they are, I've seen plenty of occasions when people have left teams as a direct result of these sort of discussions around difference. And that is ultimately a good thing. Everyone wins from that because they are now released from a, a situation that, that's not comfortable for them and those around them. It means that they can be more productive, typically more productive elsewhere. So this idea that usually the approach that, that we take at team management systems is being so strength-based, it's about unleashing and having colleagues acknowledge the contribution that you're making as an individual. So it's, it's okay and, and often a good thing if as a result of this team development process, someone decides that, hey, this isn't for me, this team. If this is the direction we're going, if these are the values that are really important to us as a group, they don't align with mine. So it's best that I go and find somewhere that do align with mine. That's fine. But as long as it's done, I guess, from a position of being informed, as long as we've gone down this process and it's not done at the beginning on this gut instinct that, hey, Harry over there in the corner isn't a team player. Let's cut him loose. Am I on the right track there? It's okay that some people won't make it to the end as long as we've gone through a process. Absolutely. And it's certainly some distinct short-term pain. There is often acrimony because of this, and it's only in retrospect that all players see the benefit of it. Partly this is reflecting the, I guess, the faith you've got to have in that longer-term process but also reflects for many teams the significance of the expertise in the facilitation of this because in situations like that where there can be acrimony, serious conflict, trust issues, it is not the sort of discussion that you can have easily. It requires a lot of safety and security. For many organizations, it's about compliance as well and ensuring that you've taken into account the health broadly the health issues for what you're doing. So if it's true that if we've gone through a, an effective process and someone doesn't make it to the end with the team through that process, but it's done from an informed position where we've looked at our individual differences, we've looked at the work that we do and how we do it and what we value as a team. And, and if either an individual has decided or the organization decides that there's someone on the team that's not along for the ride, 
that person can move along to something that is right for them and we'll feel good about that if we've given it the chance to work. What about then a team that's working on itself, that's really conscious about the way they interact and the culture that exists? How does a team like that go about recruiting into their team, bringing someone new in? Good question. Back to the function of the team. And with team management systems, what's great about it is that we can consider our composition as a group in light of our function as a team or function as a group. And if, for example, we acknowledge that there are types of work that we need to do, that we don't have anyone who likes to do them or that, we're, that are critical to our performance, but we're not paying sufficient attention to them, that can be one of our considerations for the recruitment and selection process. We talk about gaps in the team. So if, if we all have different approaches to our work, we spoke about this before, that's great. We've got different types of work that we like doing. David, you're out there, you know, talking to customers and, and I'm beavering away in the office delivering the results and, that, and that we're all playing our part and that's cool. As we also mentioned though, those differences can cause tensions if we don't work with them. But that's one thing. But if we're all the same, we might think about what types of work are critical to us but represent our weaknesses operationally. So that's when we would start looking at recruiting for difference. I'm sure you've got content around cloning and the fact that we we will often mistakenly hire people that are just like us because I'm great and so I want lots of mini-me's. And that comes again with some detriment. So let's acknowledge that to get our job done better, we hire someone who's different to us. The next thing is to then look at the implications of that difference. How do we onboard this person? How do we induct them into what we do? And also make sure that we value their contribution. How do we communicate differently with them? What do they need to know about us? And so on. So again, having a framework, having a constructive approach to that makes it a lot easier. Now, we said earlier we were going to give our listeners, leaders who are working on their team, some tools to think about because one of the steps in this process you outlined is to understand that there are tools around that can help you with these conversations. They can help you and your team with different lenses through which you can look at the individuals, the processes, the way we do our work. But before we get to some of those specific tools, tell me about the way you view tools philosophically in the work that you do. I know that, like me, you value the use of tools. You've already talked about that a little bit. Tell me where they fit for you in in this process a little more. I know you've touched on it already. And I'd also be really interested to know if there's a danger in leaning on tools a little bit too much. Well, let's unpack that, starting with a big picture and then working towards those, those few questions. In general, life and the workplace is this quest to try to understand what the hell's going on a lot of the time. And therefore, that's why we use models, language, and these sorts of frames. And whether it's a a particular frame, team management systems, or DISC, or whatever approach we're using, or a particular language of French or Russian or whatever language we're using, that's why we need them, is to not only give the individual a sense of frame, logic, order, and structure, but also to communicate that and to create a shared understanding. The problem with models comes when we put too much faith in them and we think mistakenly that one size fits all or that there is a model. And I think we're building an awareness of that more often, that we need to redefine leadership, we need to redefine teams and teamwork to suit every context. So where one model, one framework, one tool works in one context, and it might work brilliantly in one context, in another, it could be disastrous. So for us as leaders, one of the things we need to do is gauge. So firstly, have a bit of a toolkit of different options. That beautiful uh, little truism that if the only tool we've got is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So we need you know, a robust toolkit. Then apply the right tool to the right context as well. I'm really keen to ask now, how does a leader know where to get these tools? You know, if I'm busy in my day job and my day job involves a technical area, but I happen to be a leader, I don't have a lot of time to think about all these things. You and I do this for a living. We get to sift through all of these different wonderful theories and models and philosophies. How does a leader in the real world know where to even begin looking for these things? Now, your history, your long history has been with TMS, and I know that that's a a really popular system of working on teams. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what tools exist within TMS 
And also, if you will, tell us about some of the other things that you know are out there and, and are helpful for leaders in different situations. Yeah, great. The idea that we've gone from a, a technical background, and I might have been a, a great engineer, but now I'm a leader, or I might have been a great dentist, and now I'm a leader, whatever. What's happening is, is that you are now transitioning to a role where your technical job is leadership. And there needs to be an acknowledgement of that, that it brings a new skill set, it brings a new knowledge set that you need to be able to access. But the problem becomes this whole area of what is leadership and what competencies do I need is such an enormous, enormous area. A good place to start is obviously going to be Google, the people that you know around you. Hopefully anyone who's serious about their leadership capability invests in their leadership development. We were talking before about this, that looking at team development from the perspective of team health and that we're not going to improve just on one day of exercise. We have to have that as a consistent thing. And it's the same with leadership development. To be healthy, to be mindful of my performance as a leader, I need to have an awareness of those different tools. It's very easy to come to team management systems because we've got plenty. The approach that we take, and before I start looking at the tools, I guess it's important to consider the research and where this came from. Majerus and McCann were the authors that started this just down the river from where we are here, David, at, uh, at UQ. And this was over 30 years ago. And they investigated effective teams and effective teamwork. So they looked at all the things that effective teams do. And then they started looking at individual differences and how different people do different things. And it's that research that's led to our approach. And one of our core tools is called the team management profile. Now, you mentioned the MBTI and the Jungian foundation of that approach is shared with the TMS approach. So that your learners that are familiar with that would be very comfortable with the TMS language. So we look at team roles and I might be, for example, an explorer promoter. I like to explore ideas or maybe I'm an upholder maintainer and I like to uphold the values around here and maintain our systems. So we look at, at team roles as a starting point. And for an individual leader, that idea of work preferences and team roles is very, very easy because it is positive. It's all very constructive, but it's also very clearly linked to our performance. So to get that ball rolling, to get that familiarity and comfort with the process is a great start. But we use that as a launch pad to go deeper into things like risk orientation because that becomes a more challenging proposition for teams. Let's imagine that you're all about ideas and possibilities, and that's great. But I'm a bit more risk-averse, and uh, I want to be a bit more cautious. And it's very easy for you to look at me as a downer and a naysayer, but we need in our systems and our processes to have prudence, checks and controls, all of those sorts of things to mitigate and control risk. Because if we were doing everything that you reckon, mate, we'd be out of business, all of those sorts of things. So we can look at risk orientation. But again, from the perspective of the operational necessity of different perspectives, we then go deeper and look at values. I mentioned that idea of collectivism and individualism. So again, looking constructively at how our differences play out in our processes. That is looking at our individual differences, but we also look a lot more directly at performance. And uh, many of your listeners would be familiar with 360 feedback or feedback from all around. And we look at things like leadership competencies or teamwork competencies and team performance. We also look at the broader strategic factors with our team. And we get a 360 perspective, both inside the team and outside the team, as to how well we're going, what are our priorities. Very importantly, sometimes, what are the different perspectives on what our priorities are, what our priorities should be. And even very intriguing to look at different perspectives on our performance about things. It, it can be a very interesting discussion. So let's say a leader wants to invest in time with their team and whether they do it themselves and, and have a couple of really great energizing days with their team, they talk about each other and their personal differences, their professional differences. They examine the processes that they use in their team and, and think of ways to be more effective and more efficient. They have a wonderful series of conversations with their team, whether they do it themselves or whether they get someone like you and me to do it. Those days feel great and they can feel really invigorating. They can be challenging. They can be informative. But at the end of the, those few days, most people come away feeling really positive if it's a well-run few sessions. But how does a team maintain that? Because 
A two-day workshop, even if it is with you or me, is not going to make a team better forever. It needs to be something that's an ongoing, sustainable process. What can a team build in to the things they do that will hold up that standard that they achieve if they spend some time working on themselves? Yeah, the starting point back to mindset and the expectation that development is long-term. Again, back to the idea that if I go to the gym for a day or I have a diet for two days, then I'll probably feel good about that. But uh, if I come back in six months, what's the outcome? So that's the first thing, understanding that, that long-term nature of it. The second thing is also back to what's driving us in the first place, because we're going to need to come back to that continually to maintain that determination and, and drive to succeed. The third is putting squarely onto their task cycle, onto their processes, the importance of it because of looking at the effect of not having done these things in the past. Back to what we spoke about in terms of the benefit, the importance of reflection in this type of process. To look back at what mistakes have we made in the past? What can we learn from the past? Let's look at this from a strength-based perspective or from a positive psychology perspective. But what can we learn from doing that? And how do we use that information to change what we're doing? The fourth thing is to also be very clear on who's accountable for these new changes and the clear action points the expectations of what's going to happen from here. The next stage being to force ourselves out of the habit of not doing these things. You use that term maintaining, and that's a term that we use in TMS as well, for the range of activities that ensure the sustainability of our processes. And that might be everything from you know, making sure we vacuum the floors and water the plants to making sure we spend time constructively reviewing how we felt about our project or looking at the last quarter. Maintaining is about reflecting on data like engagement information, but thinking even more deeply than that, thinking about how we feel, about how we're going, what are the values that are important here, what's the culture like. And when we talk right at the start about the purpose of the team, when we start looking at the challenge for us as leaders, one of the challenges is that our contribution to our enterprise is in often these maintaining types of work. It's not about the the technical delivery. It's not about how many widgets I've made. It's about the contribution I've made to our culture and climate through people, the emotional side, the humanistic side of what's going on. So making sure that we can work in those types of work become the last piece of this puzzle. It's tempting to say that Finding the time to do that for a team is an enormous challenge. But actually, I don't think that is the challenge. I think it's putting the priority on those conversations is the challenge because we can get caught up in doing busy, urgent things. We can get caught up in doing important things for the organization and forgetting that the most important thing for the organization is how effective are our leaders and how well do we work together as a team. I love the analogy that a really busy woodchopper might be so busy cutting down trees that he doesn't stop and sharpen his axe. I mean, the analogy is obvious there. And of course, he's going to be more effective if he takes that time to stop and sharpen his axe. Do you have a level of concern for some of the teams you work with when they finish their time with you and they go back to work and you think, I doubt whether this is enough of a priority for them. They enjoyed those few days. They felt great, but I could see them as they walked out their door, checking their email, thinking about their busy day tomorrow. And this will not be a priority for them. Absolutely. Several factors playing here, back to motivation largely, identified correctly that these types of developmental activities are not prioritised. They're not prioritised because the value is not perceived. They're not rewarded in organisations. We're rewarded for outcomes. And so the, the contribution to the bottom line is typically nebulous. It's there when we want to look for it, And we can certainly feel it in the dynamic, but in terms of the direct measurable impact, it's often a long bow, but that doesn't mean it's not critical. You also mentioned the idea of people leaving these sort of workshops. There's this whole idea that this is just tree hugging, psycho babble and, and all of that sort of stuff. So it's very easy to write them off until we have seen the problems that occur when we don't do these sorts of things. Having said that, remember that you know, we are here to do a job and these sort of activities 
should only be a component of our work life, but the problem is we're often making up for lost time. The whole idea of a stitch in time saves nine when we look at these maintaining activities, that we have conflicts, we have people leaving, we have attrition rates or absenteeism or conflict and bullying claims, all of those sorts of things typically occurring because we have not done these sort of activities. We don't know what the values are. We don't know. We haven't had a conversation about what's acceptable behaviors around here and why those behaviors are so important. Chris, as I said earlier, you've been in this industry for around two decades. You would have seen some changes, I guess, in the way people work together. Tell us about the changes you've seen and and then tell me, what do you think is the future of teamwork? Huge changes. And that's clear. We are definitely in, uh, in the digital age. This whole idea of, of globalization has shifted what it means to collaborate these days, how we collaborate, why we collaborate, who we collaborate with. Obviously, the internet and digital technology has played a, an enormous role in that. And all of the changes that come with that, I'm sure you and your learners would be familiar with the notion of the VUCA environment, that things these days are volatile. They're uncertain they're complex, and they're ambiguous. And all of those things are often the antithesis of what managers want and like, that certainty and and surety that goes on. So life is very difficult for all of us. What it means for collaboration is that we have got a whole lot less time now to spend on this stuff. So while the acknowledgement of the importance of it is slowly increasing, the noise around how it's done is increasing as well. So to get a clear signal as to what I need to do gets harder and harder. But then also how we're doing it is changing. For example, we've been talking about the benefits of having like a one-day workshop or going away for a couple of days if we've got that luxury. But increasingly, what we're having to deliver are webinars and programs for dispersed teams. To do this, in order to do it over a protracted period, we're more about delivering just-in-time sort of bite-sized chunks of content to really ensure that we are sustaining this. It's one thing to have our yearly team day, but it's a very different thing to shift that and say, well, let's spend just a couple of hours a quarter on this, put it on the agenda, clear as much space as possible, but again, using solid tools and frameworks to make that time as efficient as possible. Of everything that you talked about there, one thing jumped into my mind uh, about the idea of carrying with us and almost uh, seems paradoxical, but an individual ability to be a great team member. If we're spending less time in roles than ever before, most of us are spending less time in the same job or in the same organization. In big organizations, people are expected to be on many different teams. Some of those teams last a long time. Some of them are very short periods of time. That's one of the changes that I've seen in teams. And therefore, it, it makes me think that perhaps a, one of the new professional skills that we have is to be able to adapt very quickly to being on a new team, to be good at jumping in a team scenario and assessing the individual differences, assessing what works and doesn't work, the way that my strengths can complement your strengths and that your weaknesses can complement my weaknesses. I think that is becoming a skill in itself because we haven't got that time to settle into a team that we might have had when my dad and, and his father spent their entire career working for the one organisation. What do you think about that idea? Unquestionably, a core capability for any leader these days is not just effective collaboration, being able to drive teamwork, but also agility, because things are changing so significantly, so rapidly. So you need to be agile. You need to be able to relearn, unlearn, all of those sorts of things. No deal with change. So yeah, it is a core capability. All right, Chris. Now, I imagine you're the first person that I've had on the show who knows exactly what I'm doing when I ask you the following four questions. I always end my interviews with these questions, and it will give us the chance to learn a little bit more about the inherent Chris Burton. Let me ask you question number one. Tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to. Is it a big party with lots of people you know, or is it an intimate dinner with your closest friends? Great question. And I will tend for the big party, but as long as I've got some close friends around me at the party, so we're partying together. All right. Question number two. Tell me, are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming? Big picture and daydreaming for me always. 
And what about the way you make decisions? Are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? At TMS, we look at analytical and belief-based decision-making, and I am distinctly analytical in my approach. All right. And last question before I let you off the hook. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to know exactly where you're going, plan the route and book the hotels, or do you like to get in the car and drive? Just go with the flow and be flexible is how I like to work. To the chagrin of my wife, who is very structured. Chris Burton, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to have you on and talk teams. David, absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you for the invite. And that was Chris Burton from TMS, giving us the full benefit of his experience, passion and knowledge. There was a lot to take out of that chat, but for me, the most valuable was the advice Chris gave to any leader who wants to actively develop their team. There were five points. Number one was to understand that it's a long road. Team development is not done and dusted after a single workshop. It's something that needs to be maintained if it is to be sustained. Number two, you have to bring each member of the team along for the ride. Recruit them, engage them in the mission of developing a happier, healthier team. Number three, understand the motivations of everyone in the team. What drives them? What will engage them? And four, arm yourself with the right skills and tools to apply at the right time throughout the development process. And finally, number five, seek mentors. Find people who've done it before successfully and are willing to share the lessons they've learned about developing team culture. If you're interested in learning a little more about Chris, TMS and the work they do, you'll find a link on the Lessons Learned page from this podcast. And it's there too, where, as always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.